Welcome to the definitive how-to for the modern woman. More than a podcast, a community where my guests and I are unveiling the issues and challenging the norms of being a modern woman. Together we explore and publicly air the uncomfortable and the unspoken. No topic is taboo as we search for answers to the questions that most people are too ashamed to ask. This is Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman that we are writing together. So, are you in? You being single longer than you wanted to be is because you had the strength not to settle. It's not because you weren't chosen or that something's wrong with you. It's because you are the strong one who will not settle for a mediocre connection. You insist on something really exceptional and extraordinary. Today's guest is a psychology professor turned self-help author who spent 27 years on the dating scene. She had her first boyfriend at 15, called off her first engagement at 34, and didn't get married until she was 42. Our guest first became interested in writing about dating and relationships when reflecting on her very own engagement. Although she loved her fiancé, she wasn't in love. Despite being perfect on paper, she realized marrying him would be settling, so she called off the wedding just two months prior to when it was meant to take place. She wrote her book, Single is a New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right, to empower singles, encouraging them to remain strong amidst single shaming, stay true to themselves, and never, ever settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. To all my modern women, if ever you have questioned whether you're in the right relationship or stayed in the wrong relationship out of fear of ending up on your own or that you're running out of time to start a family, then this is the episode for you. Together we discuss what it takes to survive and thrive in the dating trenches, why being single is a strength, not a flaw, how to identify the difference between the right and wrong relationship, why having high dating standards results in high quality marriages, the benefits of being a bride and parent later in life, why the fear of being alone will cause you to make soul-crushing decisions, egg freezing and navigating being a step-parent, and last but not least, why you should not wear white until it's right. It is with great pleasure that I introduce to you today the insightful and courageous Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Karen, welcome to Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. I am thrilled to be talking with you. So I love your story so much. The way single people are often portrayed in the media is like this helpless character, but you were the complete opposite. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me about your background. Yeah, so my story, I think, is some is pretty similar to so many women's story where we are doing our thing and getting our schooling, our education, and climbing that ladder, whether it's a corporate world or, in my case, it was in academia. And that was going along swimmingly because I would set a goal and reach it. Yet in love, it's not quite the the same kind of process because we can't necessarily just plan and set goals. And we have an idea maybe in our head of what we'd like our roadmap to love to be like. And I wasn't meeting those milestones. And in fact, as you know from reading my book, when I was 30, which is a, one of those transition years where you hit those big milestone birthdays. I was still single. My friends, many of them were already in serious relationships or married, and some had even started their families. And I met a guy who was a really great guy, just full disclosure, was not the kind of guy I normally went for. And I didn't feel that intense romantic connection, but I thought, hmm, you know, you've been single, Karen, and other relationships haven't worked, so maybe you need to 
Maybe don't trust yourself as much. Maybe you need to try a different, give the good guy, the nice guy a chance. And so I embarked upon a relationship for three and a half years, accepted a proposal, was engaged for a year, and then at 34, two months before the wedding, I called it off. And that was hard, and it was, I felt very demoralized, like I'd messed up this massive part of my life that I wanted to be able to control, like I said, the way I'd controlled other realms of my life. And then I was back in the dating scene, single girl in Chicago at 34, and really ended up writing my book because I kept seeing these other messages in the self-help section that suggested that at 34, since I was still single and had just botched this engagement, that there must be something fundamentally wrong with me. I must be doing it all wrong. And I thought to (laughs) myself, you know, (laughs) yeah, because I thought, "Mm, you know, I'm human like anyone else is human, but I don't think I'm any more fundamentally flawed or broken than my happily married counterparts. So I was complaining to my parents one day, and my dad looked at me and said, well, you're a psychologist. You better write a book. (laughs) And I was like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Love that. Okay, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. So let's just go back to how you spent, I think it's 27 years in the dating trenches. Am I right? (laughs) Facts, yes. (laughs) What was that like for you, trying to navigate the single and dating world? Yeah, well, like like so many women, you know, I started dating at 15, and unlike so many women, I was at it a lot longer <laughs> than many because, uh, again, because I had the, the typical vicissitudes of the dating and the breaking up, and then, of course, got really dramatic with the called-off wedding, but then I didn't get married until 42, so when I added it up, I was like, oh, goodness, I have been in these trenches for a long time, <laughs> but I think it's I think it's like probably what you and your community have experienced is along the way, there can be a lot of self-doubt, even if you're a strong, confident, independent woman, because when yet another relationship doesn't go the distance and yet another heartbreak is what you're enduring or breaking someone else's heart after a couple yeah. years going, gosh, I, I don't need, this is not the right fit. And then you feel like a horrible person, right? Because you just broke someone else's heart. It's really, it can start to really eat away at your self-esteem, at your confidence and at your hope that love is really available for you. Yeah. I mean, as someone who spent a lot of time in those very same trenches, I completely relate. So what advice do you have for women who do interpret unsuccessful dates as a form of rejection or like losing faith altogether? Yeah. And that's exactly what my platform is all about and why I wrote the book, because I really wanted to present another vantage point. You know, in in psychotherapy, so I, I was a professor for 10 years. Before that, I was a psychotherapist. So when I was in my training for psychotherapy, one of the very basic techniques we use with clients, which I end up using on myself all the time as well, <laughs> is just a basic reframe. It sounds too simple, but it's one of those things that is the most simple technique that is so profound. And so in my book, I'm reframing for women exactly what you said. When a relationship doesn't go the distance, that's not a failure. That's a win because we've learned, we've realized this is not the fit for me. We can take that lesson and use all of that, the the learning that we have gleaned from that relationship and put that toward building ourselves, understanding ourselves with more clarity, and then bringing that clarity to the next relationship. So it's a lot of reframing. It takes a lot of uh, psychic energy, though. It's a lot of mental discipline to to try to frame your life not as 
such a disappointment that you're not on track in air quotes. You're not on track with where you want it to be. Another reframe that I use that's, I think, very important for single women to really internalize is that you being single longer than you want it to be is because you had the strength not to settle. Absolutely. It's not because you weren't chosen or that something's wrong with you. It's because you are the strong one who will not settle for a mediocre connection. You insist on something really exceptional and extraordinary. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I just so wish that that was like the narrative that was being sold to us. But you're so accomplished professionally as a therapist, professor and author. I'm curious, were men intimidated or threatened by how educated and successful you are? Well, it's funny because that's another reframe that I offer my community is that if someone is intimidated and perhaps he is, then he's not your guy. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> and that's Bye. a really easy way to weed them out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Bye-bye. <laughs> so, right. And and so I really encourage women because uh, – so early, even before I wrote the book, I was approached by – I was starting to do some little snippets of like a subject matter expert for different uh, journalists out there who were trying to write a, a – article for Glamour magazine or something along those lines. And so my name had gotten out there and a woman asked me, she said, well, what are some of the things that you, a journalist asked me, what are some of the things that that women in your community are really struggling with? And I said, well, they keep hearing all these bogus messages that they're too much or mm-hmm. they need to tone it down a notch and that they're uh, too picky, right? And so that, I, actually this journalist wrote this article called Five Things Single Women Hate to Hear based on the five things that I had told her were some of the, and I was still single at the time, so I was hearing them too. And one of them was about being too intimidated uh, or intimidating rather, and that you need to tone yourself down. And I thought, what kind of misogynistic, ridiculous message is that that a woman should tone any ounce of herself down? And I can tell you, having been in those trenches, I'm madly in love with my husband. I've been married now for nine and a half years. He loves every ounce of me, every ounce of my verve, my sass, my opinions, my intellect. He doesn't want a watered-down version of Karen and the right man for all of your women listening today and in your community, the right man for them does not want any kind of watered-down version of them either. I agree, but it's just so crazy how often I get told the same thing. Like, you're too intimidating or too direct or too opinionated. I even hired a coach to, like, help me, like, work on being more vulnerable. And she was like, you wear too much black. You should be more colorful in the way you present yourself. You're always operating out of your masculine instead of your feminine. And I'm just like, I'm just doing me. (laughs) Like, if they don't like, yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that, like, you know, people are trying to help, but it's like, yes, yes. You know, I can't, like, obviously, I'm all about, like, you know, trying to improve yourself, but to try and change who you are fundamentally, I don't feel like you're ever going to attract the right person. But what advice do you have for high achieving women like yourself who feel like they need to change or oppress a part of themselves in order to attract? to partner? Well, I have some great news is that according to the research, women who are high achieving, and I cite this in my book, women who are high achieving, there's a study that looked at women who were 40 years old and compared like CEO, C-suite type women with these high achieving careers versus women who had maybe more of a a job that didn't require so much of the of the commitment to their from their life or I don't again every job to me is important and worthwhile but you know what I'm getting at like maybe more of a conventional job as opposed to that high powered intimidating scary woman job right and the and the the research found that 
the women who had the high-powered job were no less likely to be happily married and with children. And in fact, they were slightly more likely to be happily married and with children. So this notion that- I actually read that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read that in your book. I love that Mm -hmm. part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's look at the data. The data show that we 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 can have the fullness of our career ambitions and have a full, wonderful husband who loves every bit of that and, and, and admires us for that. We're not trying to, as you spoke to a moment ago, trying to change yourself fundamentally to attract someone. How long can you keep up a facade? And how gratifying is a relationship going to be where you, you think to yourself, well, I had to tone myself down. I had to be a less than version of me to get this guy. Well, are you going to respect that guy, realizing that he only loves you because he thinks that that he loves this this less than version of you? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just absurd. But the messages are out there. You're right. Absolutely. And I can actually speak to that because I dated somebody who I tried to tone it down in front of. And, you know, if we ever went out on a Saturday night and I drank a bit of alcohol and, you know, actually became a bit more direct or a bit louder, he would actually shush me in front of people. And I mean, that is just an awful way to make somebody feel and you know, no surprise, but the relationship did not last. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and if, thank goodness, yeah, it didn't last any longer. I mean, yeah, I'm wow. not, I'm not Getting upset shushed? about it. No, <laughs> no, you don't sound upset. <laughs> <laughs> so let's rewind. You called off an engagement in your 30s and didn't get married until you were 42. I mean, wow, it takes courage to walk away from the wrong relationship and stay single instead of settling. Were you ever made to feel like a failure or like you weren't trying hard enough and not having found true love sooner, even though you were like so successful in every other area of your life? I have to say that no one ever made me feel that. No one in my circle, my friends, my family, I certainly felt like a failure. And Nicole, the reason it was hardest for me is because I knew I had been stuffing the truth. I had been telling that voice in my head and that voice in my gut saying, Karen, this is not the right fit for you. I had been shushing. Talk about getting shushed. (laughs) I've been shushing myself, right? I've been quieting my own inner voice that was trying to tell me, Karen, this is not the right fit. But he was a great guy on paper. And he actually a great guy in in real life, but it just wasn't my guy. But if you if you lined up our resumes, it was a perfect fit. So I kept doubting myself, going, Well, what do you expect to feel, Karen? I mean, you're not in eighth grade. It's not gonna be puppy love anymore. This is a very successful, loving, kind, loyal, wonderful guy. He'll make an amazing father. And all that was true, which in a sense made it harder. Like if he'd been kind of a jerk, I could have gone, well, okay, this isn't really a good fit. I, I have to be honest with myself that I'm wanting this relationship more than I'm wanting this person, this, this man. Totally. But because he was such a great guy, it took me a while. And I was, as I said, I was quieting that inner voice that in, the, in, the, in my gut that was telling me this isn't the right match for you. So I was very disappointed in myself. You know, here I am like a psychologist, by the way. You think I should know better <laughs> and be more uh, aware and introspective. And so when I called it off, I, there was a lot of myself. I was beating myself up quite a bit. But I have to say people around me weren't giving me that kind of messaging. But, of course, as we spoke to a moment ago, the broader culture gives you plenty of reasons to think that if you're after whatever someone's ideal age of partnering up, if you've missed that mark, then there's plenty of single shaming out there to go around. So there was a bit of that from the broader culture, but not from 
thankfully not from my immediate circle. Totally. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, you mentioned that on paper he was perfect. But I'm curious, did you like get butterflies when you were around him ever? Or was it always just kind of like, you're great, but I'm not like totally invested or overexcited about this relationship? And that's exactly it. I never had the butterflies. I kept trying to force it, right? Because he was a good guy and because he was super whip smart and he was successful, drove the right car and had the right properties. And and not that I'm materialistic like that, but it was a good solid decision, right? He would have had a, a secure, provided me with a secure, stable life, which there's nothing wrong with wanting a secure, stable life. But two months before, I had to ask myself that very hard question, like, Karen, are you going to be okay with a secure connection that looks good to everyone around you and looks fine, but you don't have those butterflies. You don't have that spark. And is that going to go the distance or are you going to be in a couple years, you're going to step outside of your marriage because you want that, that intense connection on the romantic level that we're all supposed to have. I mean, why would you, why be in, in partnership? Why fall in love if you're not really falling in love, right? I mean, otherwise we should all just marry our friends. I mean, totally. we're just buddies. Yeah, no, I've been in a similar position where I dated somebody who basically ticked every box and was perfect on paper. But I could see my future with him, like, in the sense that it wasn't a good feeling. I was like, like, so it was too perfect, but it didn't feel like a true soul connection to me, you know? And I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm just ticking boxes here. And it was one of the hardest decisions of my life to walk away from something that would have been so secure because he was in in essence, perfect, just not perfect for me. Yep. But I wonder, did you ever consider whether you made a mistake ending it with your ex-fiancé because you were single for so long after that? I can say that right after I called it off, I had this enormous sense of relief, which is why I really encourage women and men, whoever is listening, when you're thinking about your partnership, you have to be in tune with that voice that that I was quieting as we spoke to. Also, you have to be in tune with what do you feel when you're with him. And over the year of our engagement, I had started to feel so tight because I knew I was forcing it and I was lying to myself, right? There was this internal struggle that was so intense. And so immediately when I called it off, I felt this sense of like, okay, I can breathe. Like it was very visceral. And then over the next couple months, he still wanted to get back together. Initially, I I postponed the wedding, and then I called it off entirely. It wasn't a clean break. It was kind of a, a, unfortunately, I don't recommend this, but this is what I did. It was a little bit of a meandering before we had that final break. It was a process. (laughs) There was a process, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And during that time, there were moments where I would doubt myself, but because I had spent four years, four and a half by the time we were done with him, and that battle had been waging for so long that by the time I was done, I had asked myself that question very clearly, finally. I had said to myself, Karen, this may be the only man that ever gets down on one knee and proposes marriage to you. At 34, I look back, I'm like, I was still a baby. But at the time, Such I a felt baby. a bit seasoned. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I look back and I'm like, I was a baby. But at the time, I I didn't feel like, a, I didn't feel over the hill or anything. But I knew that, <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I was a baby. But at the time, I, I did have to ask myself that question. I think we all do when we're making, when we're at that fork in the road. And we are really making a watershed moment decision. And I said to myself, Karen, if no man ever again proposes marriage, to you. You're going to be okay because you're going to choose living authentically. You're not going to have this phony 
looks great from the outside marriage, but you know inside that there's not that soul connection. And I made that choice. And once I had decided that, I was, it was shoulders back, I got this. I, I still desired partnership. I was still out there dating and trying to meet people. <laughs> but I knew that I was going to be okay. At the end of my life, if I looked back, I would have rather gone it alone, never having gotten married, though I deeply desired that, rather than have a marriage that looked like it was the real deal, but it wasn't. Yeah. And that relief that you felt once you called it off, like if that's not confirmation that you made the right decision, then I don't know what is, you know? And I think that just, it speaks to the importance of like living your life authentically, you know, regardless of whether you know what the outcome looks like, it's so important. So how did you know things were different when you met your now husband at 40? I'm so curious. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) I love that question. I, I really, you know, everything that we go through provides us with so much wisdom if we will commit to learning the lesson. And one of the beautiful things I experienced was being with the wrong person and then versus being the right person. And I should mention, I think it's interesting that my now husband, I am his second wife. So he was recently divorced with three kids. So on paper, wow. again, if we go yeah. back to the paper analogy, <laughs> there were more complexity, right? His resume included more complexities that I was going to face, stepping into a stepmother role, a recent divorce. As a psychologist, I was like, oh, I don't want to be a rebound woman here, right? <laughs> yeah. But when you're with someone who is designed for you, where there's just that ease, this it's so effortless comparatively. I don't want to say... I do want to say relationships should be easy. I actually do take issue with a lot of the rhetoric about how relationships are so tough and it's it's all all this work. I agree. I don't think they should. (laughs) Why does everyone say relationships are hard work? None of my friends are hard work. I don't find that. Right. Right. Like it's just easy. We get along. We love each other's company. I love doing things that are going to make them happy. And I hope it's like reciprocated on their end. Like, and yeah, yeah, whenever I've been in relationships that were like good, it never felt like hard work, you know? It's just, I don't know where that came from, but they need to stop telling people that because it's encouraging people to settle for the wrong relationship. Exactly. And I'll tell you where it came from is people who did settle and they tried to force it and now they want everyone else to be miserable too. So they just want to convince you (laughs) that relationships are hard work. It's so true. (laughs) I mean, and so, yeah, so I had that very, very stark contrast of what it felt like to be with someone who was suited for me, that we were a natural fit and it is so easy. And it, my husband used to, well, he still does. But I mean, early on, he was so struck by it too, having been in a marriage that wasn't working for many years, right? So he knew, he had that very stark comparison as well to go, wow, it's just things are so easy with Karen. And he told his sister early on, I think we'd been dating for like a year or so. He's like, with Karen, it's just so easy. It's like breathing. And that's that just- That is such a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't, isn't that like, beautiful? I wrote a so, song for him poetic. about that. It's poetic. Yeah. It's so yeah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad that that's your feeling too, because I do feel, I do want to stress that yes, relationships, when you meet your person and you're with the love of your life, that is your number one priority in life. And you tend to that relationship, you nurture it and you're excited to do so, but it's nothing like work. It doesn't look anything like work. Yeah. And so I'm so glad that you're, you're vibing with that too. And I love your analogy that it should be like your friendships. Cause I agree. Cause people will come to me. A lot of the women in my community, they'll say, well, it's never worked out with a guy, but then I'll talk to them about, well, talk to me about your relationships with your friends. 
And they have so much confidence with those relationships. And I try to remind them that the same skills and the same connection and commitment and intimacy, emotional intimacy that they have with their girlfriends and their male friends, that those generalize to romantic relationships. It's not that different. Completely. I mean, the best piece of advice my parents have ever given me is when looking for a romantic partner, you should look for your best friend in them, you know? The, but of course, mm-hmm. you need to have that that chemistry, which differentiates you from your friends, the relationship from the relationship you have with your friends. But I feel like so many people miss that component in their relationships, and that's why it feels like hard work, you know? I agree. There's actually a research um uh, a model by Dr. Robert Sternberg, and it's called the Triangular Theory of Love. Ooh. And it he talks about consummate love, which we might call colloquially the total package. And it entails exactly what you're speaking to. There's going to be the intimacy, which he's talking about emotional intimacy, so that best friend. Then the other prong, of course, is the romantic attraction, the sexual chemistry. Yep. And then the final prong is the commitment. And really, so often, what what is what people struggle with is when they've accepted two of the three or even one of the three instead of having the total triangle. And it's nice when the psych research gives us something concrete to kind of hang our hat on because we all kind of know, wait a minute, I want all three and I should have all three. Or like we said earlier, otherwise, why don't we just marry a, a friend? We want that spark, but we also need the friendship. It's so interesting because, yeah, I attend a meditation school and they say when looking for your person, you should meet them on various planes. So the mental plane, the physical plane, the emotional plane and so on. But whenever I speak to clients or friends, they're like, oh, you know, he doesn't give me this, but I find that in my friends. And I often wonder, is that a good way to live your life and approach your relationship? So it's so interesting what you just shared then, because I completely agree that if you don't have those three components, I don't know if that's going to be a fulfilling relationship. Exactly. And I think people settle. It's I hate that word because it's disparaging that the person that they're settling for, and that person is probably perfectly fine. If it's just not your person, it's not your person, right? So it's not about thinking, oh, I'm better than someone. I don't want to settle. But you understand where I'm going with this. It's yeah. the idea of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the two of the three, and then I'll just get my emotional intimacy for my friends. And I think people who do that 10 years on, they're on Facebook looking up their old high school flame, and then their yeah. <laughs> their marriage is a disaster. I mean, and they've got little people involved, happens. you know, children. Yes. Yeah, and it gets real messy. Indeed. So, I mean, this leads to my next question. Had you not met your husband, do you think you would have eventually settled? I don't. And the reason I can say that with such certainty is that once I had faced that head on, because again, I was 34 years old. I wasn't a baby. It was two months before the wedding. The pastor was booked. The band was booked. The reception hall was booked. So when I made that, when I took steps to step away from something that was so in place, that train was moving full speed down the track it's like I said earlier, the clarity for me knowing, okay, Karen, you've basically shown yourself who you are. You're not the person who's going to be able to settle. So I'd, I'd, I'd already internalized and, and embraced that and accepted that, that that wasn't going to be something that was going to be an option for me. The other thing is as I got older, I think some women start to settle. This is another topic that some of your community may resonate with. They get worried because of, of the mommy thing. Yeah. Right? And they want to be a mommy. And that's a very deep desire. It's probably biological as well. Of course. Procreation of the species is a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, <laughs> it's a great thing. And it, But for some women, they may be tempted to settle in order to be mommies. And obviously, 
I had shown myself I wasn't willing to do that. I also had another couple relationships, obviously, before I met my husband. There was one in my late 30s with, a, again, a guy very similar to my ex-fiance in the sense that super successful, super driven, great fit on so many levels, just not that one that one part that just didn't, I didn't feel that intense mm-hmm. romantic spark and that soul. I, you know, it's interesting. Was it the romantic spark that was kind of there? But it wasn't there in spades. And I think for me and probably for a lot of women and probably for many, maybe people, I shouldn't even say just women, the part that was there was there was some romantic chemistry, but I didn't feel that soul connection that I felt my soul felt cherished and honored, seen and safe with him. Yeah. And so, and that was my late thirties. So again, if I was going to settle, I would have done it then because of course the clock was ticking. And uh, I think it's something that every woman has to navigate for herself. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think it's the right choice to have babies with someone that you're not crazy about just to be a mommy. I don't think that that marriage that's going to be porous and fractured and not very strong, that doesn't, that's not a great environment for kids to be raised in. But I also know that some women will, their priorities are different. Maybe they're like, listen, being a mother is my number one priority. And if I get a good enough guy to go the distance with, that, that's, that'll be good enough for me. And no judgment, but personally, I don't recommend that. I don't think that that's a plan for thriving in our in our love life and in, in our marriage. Yeah, I so appreciate you saying you don't recommend it because as somebody who's in their 30s and seeing a lot of, you know, my friends having children, I can see how hard it is to raise children, you know? And if you don't have yeah. a really solid relationship and foundation in that relationship, you're going to be tried and tested and a lot of relationships don't last, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really important to ask yourself how badly do you want those children because it's it's going to be challenging and if you're not in the right relationship, it's... Yeah, like you said, not the best environment to raise kids. Oh, and I just wanted to advocate for children here too because what we see, I don't know what the landscape looks like for you in Australia, but here we see a lot of kids getting diagnosed with all sorts of psychiatric illnesses, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar even. And family systems theorists and therapists will caution us that so often these kids are getting labeled and slapped with a diagnosis that's really a reflection of chaotic family environments. Absolutely. Where, again, the marriage dynamics are trickling down to the child's behavior, and yet the kid is the one who's going to get the diagnosis. The kid is going to become the identified patient, the problem child. The kid is going to be hopped up on medication, and I have very strong feelings about that, and I'm very concerned that we are medicalizing our children because we made poor choices with our partner. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's something I, I feel really passionate about, so I'm so glad that you mentioned it today. Uh, And we've touched on this, but having met the right person now, what advice do you have for women who are being told their standards are too high or that they're too picky? I have more research on that too. (laughs) There's a researcher. (laughs) uh, There's a researcher. I think his name is Donald Bacham. He's a psychologist, and I believe it's UNC or North Carolina State. I can't remember which one, but he's a psychologist. I think it's UNC. And he's done research to look at dating standards. And he has found that exactly what we down deep know, we women with high standards, that when you have high standards with dating, what that does is you are setting the expectation that you will be treated this way, that you will treat your partner in kind, that you expect to be thriving, that you have values that you align on and you aren't compromising those values. And what happens is when you do that in dating, 
you end up marrying someone like-minded with those same values for putting your relationship as a priority and treating each other with love and respect. So he's found that people who have high standards when dating have high quality marriages. I love that. And you know, it's so interesting because single people are so often shamed. But for somebody who was single for so long, I actually ran into like somebody I grew up with and he was like, oh, are you seeing anybody? And I said, oh no, perpetually single. And he was like, I actually think it's really attractive that you don't settle. It shows that you're A, okay, being on your own, which is super attractive, but B, that you won't settle for somebody who doesn't like live up to your standards. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's a really nice way to frame it. Why don't more people do that? (laughs) Right. And you know, it's interesting because I had a similar story. In grad school, when I was getting my doctorate, I met this guy. We shared an office because it was one of these uh, joint offices. There was like five or six of us. And we ended up being really good friends and doing study groups. And we were really good friends throughout our, our grad program. I ran into him later. I was in a band. I was living in Chicago now. And he was living in the north suburbs of Chicago. And he came to see my band. And at the set break, I went and talked to him. And he's like, man, Karen, you are just living life on your own terms. And it was that same kind of honoring that yeah. I, and I think I was 37, 38 at the time. And he was married with a couple kids. And I think, and I don't know, it's just interesting. You had a guy friend say that to you and I had a guy friend say that to me. I wonder if sometimes the women are the ones being catty about our status. Uh, yeah. and the men are like, go ahead, watch her go, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like so often women are really harsh on each other. And it's so yeah. unfortunate because we should really be supporting one another, you know, and... That I, yeah, I definitely think that a lot of the shame comes from our fellow females, which is, it's really sad. Um, but I'm a firm believer that there is a lot of merit in marrying later in life. I've even dedicated an entire podcast episode to this topic. And one of the biggest known benefits is that statistically speaking, we lower our risk of divorce, right? So what advice do you have for women in a rush to get married? It's exactly what you said. Look at the data. And I... I also talk about this in the book as well. And I saw some of the same research and I'm glad that you've come across them as well. Because for me, and I think for a lot of women who are like us and like-minded, we, we want to see some research. We want to see some facts to back yeah. up our positions. But I, again, it's in the research, I saw this even in grad school when I was taking my developmental psych courses. I remember that research on parents, yes, it gets a little bit harder to get pregnant if you're in your early forties, but the research shows that older parents are better parents across the board. Oh, wow. Why? Because yeah. they're more mature. Yeah, they're more financially stable. They're more mature. They've lived more life. They've had their fun, and they're going to be able to focus in on their children without going, dang, all my friends are at the club tonight. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so there's there's just so many benefits to, to waiting and to not rushing. To me, it's it's the better path because you get to partner with someone who is also grown. Mm. And so many people who marry young, and that's, the path of some of my friends and family members even, that's great for them. I will say they have different unique challenges that I never experienced because they married someone in their early 20s or mid-20s and they had to do some of their growing up together. Yeah. Whereas when I married Dan, right, and that's a different <laughs> experience. And it doesn't always work as we know, no. right? As you said, the, the stats show that sometimes they grow apart instead of exactly. growing up together. It's really difficult to do that, Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I people talk about like the first year of marriage is so hard. I'm like, no, it's not. It's <laughs> not. I you grow if you marry a grown up and you're both 
the beauty of, of being a, a later bride is that I learned you have whether you have some big fork in the road like I did with calling off my first engagement or just having all these adult years under your belt of realizing that when I wake up in the morning, I don't look to my husband like, hey, what are you going to do to make me happy today? Yes. <laughs> right? I spent so many years making myself happy, knowing that that's my job and no one can do it anyway. Oh my gosh. I love that you said that because I feel like so many young people who end up in relationships um, from a young age do have that misconception that your partner is supposed to fulfill you. Your partner is supposed to complete you. Your partner is supposed to make you happy. And it is a recipe for disaster. And for somebody like me, I realize, no, that's my responsibility. And, you know, when that person does enter your life, it's like you compliment each other, right? As opposed to expecting them to, you know, fulfill you on every level. Let's talk about your book, Singles in New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right. (laughs) Congratulations. I loved reading it. (laughs) Thank you. Talk to me about why single is the new black and what do you want women to take away from your book? Yeah, so it's singles in new black. Obviously, it's a fashion reference and there's a (laughs) black dress on the cover. So the idea is that the new black, right, black is always in. Black is always in vogue. Black is always fashionable. Black is always sassy and sophisticated. So I love that sense of that little black dress. It's like your go-to classic dress in your wardrobe. You always have it. And that's what being single is because it's about being the fullness of who you are, knowing that like a classic little black dress, that's what being single is because you're never going to to dis- discard that for the trend, right? For the the guy du jour. You're going to st- you're going to wait for that full connection that we've been speaking to you today. And don't wear white till it's right, right? Like I almost did. I almost <laughs> wore white when it was wrong. So that's the the title was just trying to embody that. And of course, the book as I mentioned earlier, it's really about providing a different vantage point. It is not how to snag a man. I have no I share my own experience just a bit every section every chapter rather, has the same sections throughout. And at the end, I give what I call a selfie section, just to let the reader know a little bit about my personal journey with the chapter's theme. But And I share some like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But ultimately, it's not about snagging anybody. It's about resonating in the fullness of who you are, your authentic life, your authenticity, and knowing that you deserve to have an extraordinary relationship, not just something mediocre or humdrum, something really epic. And if not, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. But I love the part in your book where you talk about how single people aren't all dying to get married, nor are they miserable, lonely, or desperate. (laughs) That, like I said before, really resonated with me as someone who consciously chose to be single for a long time and never had an expectation around when I wanted to get married. And it's interesting because I have guy friends who are perpetually single and no one ever judges them for their relationship status. Never. Why do you think there is still so much single shame for women, particularly when we live in a society where women no longer need to rely on men for security? Right. So society has afforded us the opportunities to take care of ourselves financially, emotionally, and so forth. But the conventional expectation for a woman's role and how she is assessed and valued by society has not changed. So we are still primarily valued by our relationship status. This is 
archaically, I mean, we change our names, right? I mean, you can't change anything more about your identity than changing your name. And some women don't anymore, but still it's kind of the conventional expectation. And women much more quickly, if they encounter a new group of women at a cocktail party or something, they will more readily than men be asked, are you married? Do you have kids? That. Whereas a guy, the first question they're going to ask is, what do you do? Now, women still, t- to some degree, women do get the question about what you do and so forth, but it's much more common for a woman to be grilled about her relationship status because still in our society, at least in Western cultures, women are still valued primarily by who she is with and who she has produced and created in terms of her children. And men are still valued primarily by their status of their career and whether they have a high-powered job and that sort of thing. Do you think it's ever going to change? Like, are we progressing? <laughs> or is this yeah. just it for us? <laughs> I, I don't, that's a great question. I Maybe. There's a lot of changes happening that... I, I, I That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I actually heard of somebody who said... Uh, that a lot of her friends are now asking their partners to change their names to their last name. So as opposed to the woman taking the man's name, (laughs) the men are now taking the woman's name, which I find is like so interesting. Very, yeah, progressive. (laughs) Yeah, and some people will combine names. Yeah. I mean, I did, I knew of a woman even in my generation who her, um, she had this beautiful Italian last name and he had like some kind of, I don't know what it was, but it was just not a very pleasing to the ears last name and <laughs> and he took Love hers. That. So I, I think it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. So what advice do you have for women who feel stigmatized for their relationship status? Yeah. I would suggest that you look for, I mean, I'd go on Instagram and hashtag single shaming because there's going to be a lot of accounts like mine and there will be other accounts like Laura (laughs) Banky. I know you've had her on your podcast. There's other accounts where people are really fighting this stigma. And it's hard because I think what happens to a lot of the women that I connect with in my community, they'll have feelings like, well, I don't want to be single shamed, but I do want a relationship. And then they kind of almost beat themselves up. Like, I should be Miss Independent and not want a relationship, but I really do. So there's just this weird kind of space of how can I feel and deflect the single shaming, even though partly I'm sad about not being in partnership right now. So it gets pretty murky. And so really you need to be, my my advice is to make sure that you are following some accounts that are helping you navigate these waters and feel more empowered and know that whenever you have that single shaming comment, I used to hear all the time like, how is a girl like you not married? Oh, you know, get it all the time. You know, <laughs> all the time. And and try to reframe that in your mind. It used to really sting. I didn't like it. It hurt. But It's not a compliment. It's not. It's I not, know they you know, meant it that way. I think they meant it that way. But <laughs> It's like a form of pity and it's I hate receiving it, mm-hmm. you know. But it's interesting what you say because like as someone who, like I said, consciously chose to be single for so long and really embraced it and loved my independence – I knew without a doubt, like, getting married to me is so important to me. Like, I, I, I'm one of those women who are like, mm-hmm. if I don't meet the right person, I'm not going to have children on my own. I know that about me. That's not an absolute priority to me. But I really want to get married. That doesn't mean I'm going to settle for the wrong person. But I just know within myself that it's something that I really value and am really excited to one day do. But... I still really enjoyed being single. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. that shame of like, oh, it hasn't happened yet. It's like, I'm not miserable because it hasn't happened yet. Yes, I want it to happen mm-hmm. one day. But just because it isn't happening now doesn't mean I can't appreciate every day I have on my own, you know? Yeah. 
But it's interesting. What I loved about your book is how you said, you know, you can't look for love. And if you're single, it just hasn't happened yet. And I completely mm-hmm. agree with that. But not to play devil's advocate, I do think time alone is a big part of self-discovery, right? And that sometimes the universe forces us to take a time out so that it can teach us something about ourselves. Why do you think so many of us are so afraid to embrace these solo periods of our lives? And what advice do you have for women currently struggling with being alone, like we were just talking about? I think it is that fear that they're going to be alone forever. Yeah. And that's not something they want. And it's okay not to want that. It's okay to deeply desire your person. I think most people do. I think it's like 98% of the world's population gets married to whatever form of marriages in different cultures. It's a very fundamental core desire for most of us. And that's okay. I remember when I was in my late, well, mid-20s actually, And my best friend from high school and I, we were living in Chicago and we were roommates. She'd gone and we went to different colleges and then connected back up and decided to become roommates in Chicago. And I remember us driving from somewhere, whatever we were doing. And we were both single and both crabbing about it. (laughs) And I remember telling her, I was like, if I just knew at the end of this single season that I was going to be with this amazing man who just lit me up. I'd be okay. I could just enjoy this single season. And like you're saying, Nicole, I could I could just enjoy the learning process and the independence I'm gaining and learning to meet my own emotional needs. And she looked at me and she goes, but of course that's what's going to happen. Oh. <laughs> right? Hot warm. Right? And she was still, yeah. <laughs> but she had this faith, right? That she had this faith that that was going to be the end of our journey. And she was totally single and I was totally single and she had that faith. So if we can wrap our mind around that and lean into that belief that, yeah, at the end of this, this single season, for whatever reason, like you said, it may be, I agree with you. I believe that our path is our path and I believe in God. So I believe that God has seasons that we're meant to learn. I mean, absolutely. what I communicated in the book and what I communicate with my community, I could not speak to if I had not lived all those years. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And like that time alone, it like changes your values. So maybe if you hadn't gone through that time alone and met your person 10 years prior, you might not have appreciated them for who they are. So you needed that time alone to recognize what's actually important. Like you said, you had the guy who was perfect on paper, but later when you met the person who perhaps wasn't as perfect on paper, you recognized him on a different level and recognized that he was perfect for you and that that actually Mm -hmm. trumped the ticking boxes guy, you know? And I just Mm -hmm. feel like sometimes when we're young, we're like, we want it all and we need those years alone to recognize that having it all doesn't equal happiness. You know, you need that soul connection. You need, maybe it's not the guy with the nice car, but it's the guy who's going to, you know, wake up every morning and cherish you for who you are. You know, it's just, I mean, I certainly needed those years on my own in my 20s to reevaluate what was actually important in life. And I feel like so many people are so scared to be alone and then just repeat the same patterns in their relationships, completely unaware of where they're going wrong. For sure. And and that fear of being alone will absolutely cripple you. Yeah. It will cause you to make soul-crushing decisions. Absolutely. There are so many people who are in the wrong relationship, who are being treated horribly, who are being abused. 
And they just still at some level, well, it's better than being alone. No, it's not. No, the minute it's you not. say it's better than being alone, it's not. It just no. isn't. But it's that fear, Nicole. I yeah. really think that, like, to answer your question, I think it's the fear. The fear of being alone really keeps people from enjoying and appreciating and thriving in those single years and really gleaning from those years all that they're meant to learn. And so we've touched on this, but women are sadly so often made to feel like we have a shelf yeah. life, right? What advice do you have for women who are worried they're running out of time to find love and start a family? So the first thing that your generation has that we did not have, when I was in my late 30s, I started thinking about freezing my eggs, but it was still experimental and very expensive. And I was a professor at the time living in Chicago, and that was, it was cost prohibitive for me. But I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the States, there are a lot of fertility clinics now that are And some are offering some really nice packages in in terms of payment plans and so forth. My first advice is if you know you want to be a mommy, go ahead. I have actually a podcast episode on it with a woman who froze her eggs. She's, I think, 33, 34, and she did it, and she explains the whole process. It's not as invasive as you might think. It doesn't take. It's basically, I don't know, like six to eight weeks max. It's not as – I thought it would be more, oh, my gosh, you're going to have to do this for six months, all these hormones – I would just suggest that because then that can take the pressure off. If you can possibly cobble together the financial wherewithal to make it happen, maybe ask your parents and aunts and uncles, hey, don't buy me a Christmas gift this year. Just give me a little money for my little fund here. Because it really takes the pressure off to have uh, some eggs that they're able to now freeze. And then you can set that aside and make sure that your motivations are pure in your pursuit of love, that you're not just looking for a daddy for your children. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. Absolutely. I often like go between whether I should do it or not, even though I do think it's a great insurance policy. Yeah. So you've mentioned you're a stepmom. As someone with mm-hmm. a stepmom who I consider to also be my best friend, I know how important that role is in the child's life. What has that journey been like for you? And be honest, because I always ask my stepmom, I'm like, <laughs> did you hate it? <laughs> did you actually love me? <laughs> well, you know, all the fairy tales and then Disney laid it on thick that stepmothers are horrible. So. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, honestly, it was something I was, it was quite daunting for me. So when we got married, the kids were, um, I think, yeah. So I think it was sophomore high school freshman college and then senior in college as far as like by the time we were married. So the kids weren't babies, but there was a lot more mothering that I did that I than I anticipated. I kind of thought in my head, oh, what I'll do is I'll be dad's wife because they're old enough that won't, I'm not changing diapers or yeah. <laughs> figuring out all these kinds of things that, that someone would with maybe toddlers or elementary age children. So I, in my head, I was like, I'll just be dad's wife and that'll be, but... <laughs> There's still some parenting to happen, obviously, in high school and college age. So Major I will say it was, it was hard. Major. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more than I realized. But what I will say is that the, the funny thing is that the parts of the parenting that are really hard, those are the, those are the experiences that actually make you closer yes. in the end. So the part – so when it, there was like the hardest times – were the ones that later I was like, oh, wait, that was the mothering. Now we're bonded in a way that we wouldn't have been if it had just been smooth sailing. Oh, absolutely. 
I can really relate to that. Yeah. I've been through things with my mm-hmm. stepmom, and it definitely brought us together. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. When I love you're... that you're so close. So that's really sweet. I love hearing that. Yeah. I mean, I call her every single day. So it's like so funny how mm-hmm. you were saying, oh, you know, I met them at this age. So I thought the parenting would be like, you know, I would, yeah. would, I'm like, she, she still receives phone calls from me every day. <laughs> So her role as a parent is not by any means over. And and that's the thing. I think it's a forever role, you know, like. Yeah. So what advice do you have for women, though, who are new to the stepmom role? So that's another area where you're going to want to have a network because being a stepmother is not something that everyone encounters. Like I don't have a whole lot of stepmother friends. And so that's something that I, I've had stepmothers on my podcast and I have tried to in, embark upon that, those connections on Instagram, some places where I can find other stepmothers because not everyone's going to understand. It's a very, it's a, it can be very dicey and complex. Very. Initially, I don't know if you experienced this, but I think sometimes kids, as they begin to bond with you, they may feel as if they're maybe betraying oh, their biological hugely mom. Hugely yes. so. Hugely yeah. so. Yeah. My yeah. stepmom <laughs> tells me stories about how I told her because I met her when I was like around the age of six. And I would say, my mommy doesn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and we laugh about it now. And I've like I've since apologized. Right. I'm like, I'm so sorry. That's like <laughs> you such were a baby. Aw- yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, like you said, this is a very mm-hmm. complex situation, you know, and it's you have to be yeah. tread carefully. You don't want to overstep your mm-hmm. boundary. You know, but at the same time, like, you also want to connect with the child. And it's, yeah, I mean, I bet that, like, having a community would really help with that, like you said. You have to because – so here's what I got from my friends, which was loving. They're like, oh, Karen, you're so kind and sweet. They're going to love you. like, okay, that is such a simplistic understanding of what's going on here. (laughs) Like, like, the more kind and sweet I am, the more hard it might be. Because, right, then they'll be like, oh, I really want to love Karen, but that's going to make things with my mom weird. Like, And I'm not even, I've not had that conversation with my stepkids, so I'm not speaking for them, but I've just tried to put myself in their shoes. So other people who aren't part of that step family world, they just don't get it. And they say things that they they mean to be helpful, and it's fine. It's not not helpful, but it's, not helpful. <laughs> so you need that connection with to other set moms. Definitely. And so I'm curious, has it been hard for you not having children of your own? Yeah, for me, that has not been easy. That's been a, a pain point and something that I grieve. And so when we got married, I was 42. And um, full disclosure, my husband had had a vasectomy because he had his three kids from his prior marriage. And so when we got married, he went to the urologist right away and said, okay, I want a reversal. And we were going to try right away. Yeah, yeah. He was a dream. He he really is. (laughs) Love that. I know. No, he was amazing. Yeah, we talked about it. He's like, I'll just get it reversed and we'll just get going. But what happened was the urologist said, wait, your wife's 42. Maybe you guys should go straight to IVF. So we went straight to, which I thought was, oh, that's probably not a bad idea because then it'll be more monitored and we can make sure we get the best egg. Because I knew the realities were, I, I didn't have 20-year-old eggs. Yeah, My eggs are 42. So we went through that process for several years and nothing ever worked. So that was obviously disappointing and something that is, yeah, like I said, it's, I think it's something that's still, you know, I'll see someone who's pregnant and I'll be like, really super happy for him. But it's like, oh, I'll never get to experience that. It, it's definitely something that... It's not, I can't wrap that up in a tidy little package for anyone, right? It's, yeah. it's just what it is. And um, I don't, what I will say to anyone who may be looking like, oh, wow, 
Like, I love that Karen met the love of her life and he sounds like this amazing man, but I also don't want to be Karen because she's not a mom. What I will say is I made my choices and again, I wish I'd been in the generation where egg freezing would have been an option for me and wasn't experimental. So I I regret that I didn't try it really, but like I said, it was just, I, I don't know, sometimes I still regret that to be totally completely honest no I appreciate the honesty yeah 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 I just I I really like that's been one of my big regrets I feel like even though it was experimental I should have given it a a shot but I will say that the way I make peace with it is that we all have a choice every day right I could sit there and wake up and go I have this amazing man who is the love of my life and like I said I waited a long time for him I'm sad that I didn't get to have babies with him I really am or at least one (laughs) You know, um, but I can't spend all my days focusing on what I don't have. I just won't do that. I don't think that that's honoring the gift of him and our life together and the gift of all the other wonderful blessings in my life, yeah. my health, my family, my 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 beautiful relationship with my stepkids, my beautiful relationship with, with my friends. I just don't choose to focus on that. Like someday I might be like, hey God, you know, when I go to heaven, hey God, really? Why couldn't, because you know, people will say things, Nicole, and they mean well, but they'll be like, oh my gosh, you would have made the best mom. And I'm like, oh, "Oh." that's so painful. Again, they don't mean it that way That's a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. I know, I know, but it does. It's like, ah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I don't have a a, a perfectly like tidy little answer for that, but I will say Mm. that we can be very honest about things in our life that didn't go as we'd hoped, but also not let that overwhelm us every day and make us miserable and and make us unwilling to really revel in all the blessings that we do have. So true. So true. But reflecting on your love life, do you now believe in fairy tales and the picture-perfect happily ever after? <laughs> Yeah, like we said earlier, I am I believe in happily ever after. I believe that the the relationship that you're going to have is going to blow your mind when you're in it. It's going to be so much easier than you ever believed a relationship was possible. You're going to have that deep connection that at times when you're single for a long time like I was, that sometimes you doubt I mean, is Hollywood lying to us with all these chick flicks? Like is are these romantic comedies just a lie? I remember when I called off my engagement, I was at home in my new apartment now by myself. It was a lazy Saturday afternoon and on TV was Father of the Bride, the one with Steve Martin from, it's been a while now. It's an old yeah, movie wow. now. I haven't heard that for a Early while. Early 90s, I think. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching The Love Affair with Steve Martin's daughter and then her boyfriend and they were so in love. And I remember looking at that going... I want that. I want, is that real? Is it possible? I want that. And I just stepped away from something that wasn't that. And here I was now embarking upon the hope and the belief that happily ever after exists. And I just remember thinking, you know, I, I want that or nothing. So yeah. I'll wait for it. So I, I, yeah, to answer your question, yes, I do believe in love and I believe in happily ever after. And I believe that it's available to all of us. I love that. So the purpose of this podcast is to create the manual for the modern woman. What are three pieces of advice you wish you knew earlier? It's kind of what we've been talking about. One, I wish that I knew earlier that there is no reason to rush anything. And whatever, wherever you are, it's so, it's one of those 
<laughs> sayings that when I was younger, I would really resist. And if someone would say them, I'd be like, ugh. But where, wherever you are is exactly where you're meant to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? It's so hard to, yeah. like, yeah, digest <laughs> that receive. when you're in the thick of it. Yeah, but totally, I agree. Yeah, I, I wish I could talk to my 25-year-old self, right, and have that faith that my best friend from high school had had, right, that of course the end of your story is going to be exactly what you want, of course, you're going to have that amazing relationship. And that, like you said earlier, you'll even appreciate it more because of the, of the valleys and the struggles. So yeah, so my first piece of advice would be just wherever you are, that's exactly where you're meant to be. My second piece of advice, of course, I have to say never settle in anything, <laughs> anything at all, never, in love, life, nothing. Every day is an opportunity to reach higher, to believe in the fullness of you and the fullness of your potential and the fullness of everything. I mean, when you approach life that way, like the research shows, you're going to meet someone at that level. And the two of you are just, it's the sky's the limit. It's going to be big, bold dreams. Yeah, never settle. And thirdly, I will say that... I will say that the most important thing you can do on a daily basis is to know that your mindset is everything. And so I do a lot as a former therapist, I do a lot with cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive therapy is all about your mind and your thoughts, right? And so the beliefs. And so you are only limited by whatever you are allowing to run through your mind on a daily basis. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, and that's your only limit. And so my and my invitation to anyone listening is to, if you have limiting beliefs, to examine them, challenge them. I talk about that in my book as well. One of my favorite modalities for this is REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, where you just dispute all your limiting negative beliefs. And that, once you wrap your mind around that, you will be unshackled. You will be free to step into the fullness of who you are meant to be. Can I just say, full disclosure, when I read that part of your book, I actually was having a very stressful day and I used it as a tool to deal with my anxiety and it helped so much because the logic overruled the anxiety. And then I saw on your website, yeah, that you do a lot of uh, mindset therapy and I was like, I should book it. Yeah. <laughs> It's like I said earlier with the with the reframe, like the things I learned as a psychotherapist, the techniques to share with clients, <laughs> I started using them on myself and I'm like, oh yeah, that really works. <laughs> yeah, it really, really does. So Karen, what's next for you? Yeah, so what is next uh, is my next book, which is actually going to be about calling off my wedding. It's going to be a resource just to help women examine, are you in this engagement for the right reasons? Because it gets convoluted. And I can speak to that having been in the wrong relationship for a long time and trying to convince myself that it was right, that it was the right decision. And I think that there's a lot of books in the bookstore to help you plan the perfect wedding and not so many to help you ascertain if you're in the right engagement. Oh, absolutely. Karen, thank you so much for coming on the Single at 30 podcast and sharing your story with us today. I can't wait for you to release your next book. Thank you so much, Nicole. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for listening to this Single at 30 episode, Why Single is the New Black, with the insightful Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and hit follow and subscribe. If you have any questions, feedback, or even an episode idea, DM me on Instagram at single underscore at underscore 30 or join the Single at 30 closed Facebook group to become part of the community where together with other like-minded modern women, we publicly air the uncomfortable and the unspoken. As always, no topic is taboo as we search for answers to the questions most people are too ashamed to ask. This is Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman that we are writing together. Thank you.